The reading for today is Romans 12:14 through 21. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Amy. I'm back. Hello again, Arcadia. Good to see you guys. If you haven't already, open your Bibles to Romans 12. That's where we are yet again. Uh, Or your phones or your pads, whatever it is that you have. Um, We are taking these last two weeks of Romans 12 to look at uh, those last uh, eight verses, uh, 14 through uh, 21. We're going to look at 15 and 16 primarily today. Going to skip over 14 for just, uh, um, kind of skip over 14 for a minute. Uh, mostly grouping that with 17 through 21 uh, next week. Uh, one of the reasons is because, um, well, a commentator, Doug Moo, says this. He says, verse 14 is a slight interruption to the current flow that Paul is, is doing, and it really previews and anticipates the argument that Paul gets into very heavily in verses 17 through 21. So while I will deal with 14 a little bit towards the end, we're going to mostly group it with next week. But we have been in the book of Romans for more than a year and a half, and we have been in the book, in the, in the chapter of, of chapter 12, we've been in that for several weeks now. And uh, again, I want to just remind you where we are. What happened is in the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans, Paul is laying out uh, the gospel, the, the, the good news of Jesus Christ. He's giving us the theology of the gospel. He's talking about God's sovereignty, God's mercy, the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, uh, the relationship of, of Israel and the church. He lays all of that out for us. And then at the beginning of chapter 12, there's a decided change in what Paul is trying to uh, get across and present to the church in Rome. He says, now, in view of everything that I've just told you about God's mercies in your life, I urge you then, brothers and sisters, to live in a particular way. In other words, I want you to apply this gospel, this good news to your lives. And we would say around um, Redemption Church That theology isn't theology until you begin to actually live it and apply it in your lives. That that the gospel is for all of life. That Jesus is for all of life. That as long as you keep the gospel up here and it never gets to your hands and feet, uh, that, that that, that, that's not even theology, that's not gospel. It needs to be something that transforms the way we live. So, So he says in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, and this sets in motion the entire rest of of the book of Romans, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, because of the mercies of God, by the mercies of God, because of what he's done in your life, you are to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. And this is going to be holy and acceptable to God. In other words, your entire life now is lived as a life of worship to God by the power of the Holy Spirit living in you. And you're going to live a sacrificial life. That's the key word in there, that our lives are going to be sacrificially lived and then he says oh and by the way one of the reasons that this is going to happen is because again by the power of the holy spirit we are no longer going to be conformed to the pattern of this world 
In other words, we're no longer going to buy the world's story for what reality and truth is. We're no longer going to accept the fact that the world's systems and the world's ideas for fulfillment are actually going to fulfill us. We still have to live in the world, but instead we're going to bring into the world this this alternative narrative of truth of the good news of Jesus Christ. And that is going to be done by the transformed way that we live through the renewing of our mind. So he says, uh, do not be conformed any longer to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that as you live, as you read scripture, as you're in your community, uh, in church, as, as you are talking with other Christians, as you're praying, you, you begin to be able to test life against the gospel and you begin to understand what God's will is for your life, his holy and pleasing and acceptable will for your life. And so today we'll look at verses 15 and 16, which is again an extension of this idea of of the Christian ethic of love that Paul begins to define in verse 9 of chapter 12. In in verse 9 he says, again because of the sacrificial living and this renewed thinking, that our love is to be genuine, that we're to abhor what is evil and we're to hold fast to what is good and then from there on he just continues to define what what the christian ethic of love is for the christian uh and and we get to verses 15 and 16 and we find that we are also now to demonstrate compassion and so what i'm going to do is i'm going to reread verses 15 and 16 i'll include include 14 uh, but we're going to get started on that now so paul writes bless those who persecute you bless and do not curse them Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Now, the first time you read this, and even maybe the second or third, but when you first encounter this paragraph here of Paul's, at some point you might want to ask yourself, you might be asking yourself this question. So when Paul wrote this, was he like, was he finishing up dinner at a Chinese restaurant and he got like 10 fortune cookies together and opened them all up and then just started cutting and pasting all the little fortunes together? Because this just sounds like, like clause after clause or sentence after sentence of things that are completely disassociated from each other and random. And the answer is no. All of this relates together. It, it is not fortune cookie theology, but rather he's, he's expounding here on two principles, two exhortations, which would be our big idea for today. And here it is. We are to live in harmony and we are to live in humility. Uh, the, the practice of genuine love, of affectionate love for each other and even for those outside of the church would be to live in harmony and to live in human, uh, humility. And by doing so, we will be a blessing and not a curse to others. We will be a blessing. So two major things we're going to talk about, harmony and humility. Let's start with harmony. And it really starts there, the harmony deal really starts with verse 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And that statement by itself, it sounds simple enough. We hear that and we go, okay, that makes sense. I think I can do that. But while the statement sounds simple, living it out really isn't as easy as we might think. In fact, we are tremendously challenged to do these two things. And when Paul makes this, this simple statement of rejoicing and weeping with those who are rejoicing and, and weeping, what he's trying to get across is a principle known as empathetic involvement with others. Empathetic involvement with others. In other words, 
really knowing other people well enough that you can enter into their situation with them and actually live in that situation with them. And we need to understand, this is, this is, this is a theme that's just continued from Sean's message last week. In order to be empathetically involved with other people, you have to be in deep community with them. You cannot do this from afar. You have to be right there with them. You need, to, you need to not just come to church on Sunday mornings, but you need, to be, you need to be in a redemption community and doing life with each other, with the other people in this church. That is a big part of it. And with other Christians even outside of this church, you need to be involved, here you go, in the messiness of life in order to live empathetically. That's a big deal. In other words, Paul would say that impassive detachment has no place in the bride of Christ. Impassive detachment has absolutely no place in the bride of Christ. If you are truly born again and the Holy Spirit is living in you, you can't be impassively detached. It just won't work. Uh, George Fox, who uh, there's, there's actually a university in, in, in uh, Oregon named after this guy. He used to pray this prayer all the time. And it's a prayer that you and I should pray as well. He prayed this. Lord Jesus, please baptize my heart into all conditions so I might be able to enter the needs and conditions of all. And that is a prayer that just rubs against our general self-centeredness. We want everybody else to be baptized into us and look at us and have everything curved in on us. But this prayer says no. The gospel says that we are going to be baptized into all conditions so that we might enter the needs and conditions of all other people. That's what a gospel-centered life does. That's what sacrificial living does. That's what renewed thinking does. So the challenge of empathetic involvement, again, I think it makes perfect sense to us intellectually. Cognitive, we would look at that and we say, yes, I vote for that. But again, living it out is, is the challenge. And, and living it out is because um, we are still fallen human beings and so we wrestle with pride and resentment and envy and jealousy and and all of those things those conditions of the heart that the holy spirit is overcoming in our life but though they still rear their ugly head those conditions of the heart get in the way of living in a in a harmonious and empathetic way with others and, and let me tell you this is a common struggle for every one of us you're not alone in struggling with this and I know, I want to spend some time on this. I know that a lot of people will tell you, and isn't it interesting the way Paul lists this? He, he talks about rejoicing with those who rejoice first because it's much harder. It's much harder, actually, to celebrate with those who have been blessed than it is to weep with those who weep. You know, somebody's having a bad time. It's really easy to go over and console them and feel sorry for them. That's an easy thing to do, but I'll tell you, that, I'll tell you what, when something good happens to somebody else and not you, it's hard to celebrate with them. It's harder to rejoice with them. And I would acknowledge that generally is true. I mean, we have all kinds of examples. If you'll recall, the prodigal son's brother, the prodigal goes out and, and just lives literally like hell for a number of years, blows his inheritance, and then comes back. And his father puts the robe on him and gives him the ring and throws a party for him and kills the fatted calf. And there's the brother out there refusing to participate in, in the rejoicing of those who are rejoicing. He's out there pouting and, and behaving, quite frankly, the way all of us would probably behave if that happened to our little brother or little sister. It is hard. Here's a... Another classic example, people bring this on up all the time, it's, it's the idea that you go to coffee with somebody, and you sit down, and you say, oh, you start in the conversation, so how's it going? And they say, 
you know, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm just kind of busting. You wouldn't believe what happened. I, I had this aunt in, in uh, Oklahoma, and, um, uh, you know, I, I think I met her when I was eight years old, and every now and then she'd send me a Christmas present, like some socks or something that I didn't really like or whatever, but a couple, ye- couple weeks ago she passed away, and <laughs> you wouldn't believe it, she left me a million dollars. And you're sitting there having coffee with that person, and you're going, oh, wow, that's really wonderful. <laughs> why did I buy the coffee? I don't understand why I bought the coffee. Why didn't you buy the coffee? I don't understand. And, and before any of you say, oh, come on, that's not real life. That never happens. You want to bet? <laughs> I set you up. Sorry. I, I had a friend 20 years ago. I, he's still a friend. I just haven't seen him in about 10 years. We don't really run in the same circles now. About 20 years ago, he's running a small business in Phoenix, doing fine, got a family, getting along just fine. He has an aunt in the Midwest that, that it, during the, his early life, he kind of grew up in the Midwest and he knew this woman and, and then his family moved out to Phoenix and eventually he grew up and he, and he started living in Phoenix and started his own family here and was running his business. And, but, it, but he kind of stayed in touch with this aunt. He, he always sent her a, a birthday card. He always sent her a Christmas card. And then occasionally throughout the rest of the year, he would just send her a, a little note or whatever. Well, this aunt of his uh, lived in a very modest house. Uh, he described it as like a two-bedroom that was maybe 1,000 square feet. Uh, lived very in a kind of a frugal life. And, and, and really, the rest of the family... Paul talks about the lowly ones in this passage. The rest of the family kind of treated her as, as she was kind of lowly, okay? But, but this guy, this buddy of mine, would just continue to send these cards and everything. Well, then she passed away. And about two months later, he finds out from this woman's attorney that she was a hoarder. But she didn't hoard stuff in her house. She hoarded cash. And she had left my buddy $3.1 million. He no longer owns a small business, doesn't work very much anymore, okay? And what's interesting is he went back for the funeral before he even found out any of this, and, and he might have gotten a little bit of a preview of what was going to happen because he did walk into her house at one point, and, and he walked into this, the, kind of the kitchen into the little dinette area of the house, and up on the wall were all the Christmas cards and birthday cards that he had sent her over the years. She had kept them up there as, as keepsakes, okay? And I remember when he was telling a bunch of us, we were in a business group together, when he was telling us this story, it was just interesting to look around at the reaction uh, of people, probably including myself, okay? They didn't seem as happy about this news as he did. They were struggling to rejoice with his good fortune. And by the way, let me just make sure I make this point, okay? The purpose of me telling this story is not for you to decide to start sending cards to obscure people that you don't really know. <laughs> Although that would not necessarily be a bad thing, okay? The point is, is that we really do. We, we look at somebody else, experience a blessing in their lives, and it just the pride and the envy and the selfishness and the jealousy just tends to get in the way of us being able to also enter with them and celebrate that and, and rejoice that in that with them. And so we say rejoicing is harder to do. But I would even say that the weeping part also is tough and that it exposes our self-centeredness and our narcissism as well. I've I've been a pastor a while and and I've done many, many, many funerals. Not so many since I came to Arcadia. We tend to be a younger uh, church than my last one, but the last church I did a lot of, maybe eight or ten a year. They were just dying from my preaching. Um, But anyway... um, 
I will tell you, I've done a lot of funerals, uh, probably a couple of hundred. And, and this doesn't happen every time, but it's remarkable how often it does. How somebody will enter into the memorial service, the actual funeral, and they will work as hard as they can at trying to take a service that's supposed to be about remembering the deceased and memorializing the deceased and, and, and enjoying the life of the deceased and going through our grieving process, they'll take that service and they'll somehow try to turn the service and make it about themselves. And they'll try to steal the show. They'll try to, they'll try to take the attention off the deceased and put the attention on them. And they'll use it as an opportunity to try to gain attention. And it's just sad to watch somebody who is so insecure and so selfish and so filled with, filled with not only insecurity but also with pride that they would take something like that and still try to make it uh, about themselves. Our proclivity as human beings, as Augustine and Luther have both said, is that we are constantly curving in on ourselves even when the decorum clearly calls for us to be other-oriented. And I know we'd never say that out loud. We'd never walk into a a funeral service and say, I really want this to be about me. But our actions demonstrate that that's what we're thinking. And these actions and behaviors and tendencies are disharmonious. And Paul calls us to harmony. And he calls us to empathy. And he calls us to compassionate involvement and connection with our community. And it's done not by our own power, not by us waking up and saying, I'm just going to do it today but it's done by engaging the gospel and living a gospel-centered life and knowing that we are filled by the power of the Holy Spirit and recognizing that, that, that our hope is not in ourselves, but rather it's in the character and the sovereignty and the promises and the faithfulness of God and that God has given us those gifts. He's given us. It's not something... It's not something that we're waiting to get. He has given us through Christ his character, his promises, his his faithfulness. He's given us this hope, and that's the power by which we can live this life. Uh, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians something that that goes along these lines. It's it's chapter 1. He writes this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort that we ourselves have already received from God. In other words, now that we're engaged with God, we are part of God's family, we're filled with the Holy Spirit, we, we have his character and his promises and his faithfulness, even when we go through suffering and troubles and trials, we are comforted by God in the midst of that, And then we are able to go out and use that comfort to demonstrate his comfort to other people as well. Paul goes on to say, For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in his comfort too. If we are afflicted, it's for your comfort and salvation. Have you ever looked at your suffering like that, y'all? Most of us, when we're suffering, when we're in pain, and I get it, I'm not trying to trivialize our suffering and pain, it's hard, but most of us, when we're suffering and we're in pain, we want to know why this is happening to us. Have you ever thought that maybe God is allowing or even causing that to happen to us so that we can be a comfort and a blessing to others? Sean said it last week several times. God blesses us to be a blessing to others. He also comforts us so that we can be a comfort to others. And if, we, and if we're not suffering and having troubles and trials and challenges, there's no reason for him to comfort us. So he comforts us so that we can be a comfort to others. 
If we're afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is also for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. This is, this is harmony. And it's really born of humility, if you think about it. it sharing in the joys and sorrows um, uh, of others is one of the most important ways that we engage in affectionate love for each other. But, but it's also, in its harmony, it's also born of a humility. Paul comes along and he says, listen, you need to start associating with the lowly ones. So harmony means that we associate with everybody, including the lowly ones, but that's, this is where hu- uh, uh, humility begins to creep into the equation. Because in order for us to look at those that we consider lowly around us, if we're going to associate with them, we can't be pride or arrogant or, as Paul says, haughty. We can't do that. And specifically, the, the, Paul, the word that Paul uses for associating with the lowly, for the lowly is, is the Greek word that means those with little worldly stature or goods those with little worldly stature or goods. In other words, it's the people that we look at and think they really can't do much for us. They are the lowly. They are the people that we see as less important, less accomplished, even kind of a a bother. And so you and I, in honesty, in thinking of ourselves with sober judgment, as Paul says earlier in chapter 12, you and I have to ask ourselves this tough question. Are we a return on investment kind of person when it comes to relationships? Are we only willing to spend our time, take our time, investing in relationships with others where we think we're going to get something out of it? Or are we willing to submit to and humbly serve others even when there's no, quote, return on investment or tangible return on investment? In the quiet of our minds, are we asking ourselves, what can this person really do for me? Should I even bother with this person? This is disharmony that is born of a lack of humility. And if Jesus had that attitude, we wouldn't be here today. We would not be saved. There's a documentary that was, I don't know if it still is, was on, on Netflix recently called um, 20 Feet from Stardom. Anybody see it? One person in first service. You guys are much smarter than the first service, apparently, because a lot of you have seen it. 20 Feet from Stardom, and I believe the um, uh, sort of the subtitle was What It Takes to Be a Backup Singer. Okay. I really liked the, this documentary because David Bowie was in it. He's an old guy from the 70s. But, um, but w- one of the things I thought was fascinating is we all have music that we like and, and, and bands and singers and stuff that we follow and that we appreciate and we enjoy. And virtually all of them have people that work with them. Prim- primarily, we're talking here about their backup singers. And what's interesting, what this documentary showed about these backup singers is that the vast majority of these backup singers are not only just as good as the star, but they're even sometimes, in many cases, better than the star. And that in order to, but in order to make something so beautiful, they have to actually submit themselves, humble themselves, to to, to work together with somebody else in harmony to make this beautiful product. And they're willing to step back away from the stardom and say there's something bigger going on here that's more beautiful and more important than just me and I'm willing to submit myself to that. This is why bands break up all the time is because just pride gets in the way. Somebody gets upset that somebody else is getting more attention or more fame or whatever and then, the, and then it just blows apart. The, the success of most of these bands depends ultimately on the humility of people making sure that they're willing to work with people to make beautiful harmony. 
And so you talk about humility, and, and let me just dive full on into that now. And we, we continue with this idea that, uh, of associating with the lowly. The, the Greek word for associate is actually to be carried away with. And so what Paul is saying is that if you're going to be carried away with something, don't be carried away with your arrogance and your pride and your haughtiness, but rather be carried away with the lowly. Be carried away with the people who need you. Okay? And, and so Paul says, don't be haughty. And, and that word haughty literally means don't look at other people with an uplifted nose. Don't go through life like this, looking down on other people. He says, instead, you need to associate with the lowly ones, those who know that they have nothing that they can depend on except God. And, and this is important for us to recognize because, you know, when church gets mixed with wealth and success as it has in, in, in Western civilization, we tend to forget the gospel and remember everything that we think we bring to the table. We begin to forget that Jesus sacrificed for us and therefore we should sacrifice for others and and we begin to look at the wealth and the accomplishments that we have and we begin to think that it's about us and and when you're thinking that it's about us, you can't be humble. And, And so churches often are filled with people who profess a faith in Christ but don't actually live a faith in Christ because frankly, They don't really need Jesus because they've got it all wired. They've got money. They've got acclaim. They've got success. They've got power. They've got all the things that the world is telling them will fulfill them. And so while they may attend a church and profess Christ, the way they live is actually into their their idols. And all of these things really just get in the way when it comes to associating with the lowly if we don't prioritize them properly. And then the last thing uh, Paul says is never be wise in your own sight. I love how one commentator put it. He said, here's what Paul's saying. Don't be pompously opinionated. Do you um, know anybody, have a friend, maybe a family member who's pompously opinionated? They're a blast to hang out with, aren't they? Kind of that whole me monster thing, you know? Paul says, listen, if you're pompously opinionated, there's really not much room in that in the bride of Christ. Now, we forgive you, we're going to stick it out with you. We're in community with you. We forgive you. But, but you need to understand, you are a saint who has been washed and cleansed in the blood of Christ. You are sanctified. You are a saint. But living as a pompously opinionated person, you're living as a self-centered sinner. You need to stop and live into the gospel, which is your true identity. That's what he's saying. One person says it this way, the person who's wise in their own eyes is rarely so in the eyes of others. I've mentioned this before, as a pastor, people come and confess their sin to me, and that's good, that's biblical, that, that's a wonderful thing, and I have people that I'm able to confess my, my sin to as well. But here's the thing that I think is interesting. I've heard every sin you can think of confessed, but the one sin that I rarely hear, in fact, in my entire uh, two-plus decades of being a pastor, I think I've heard this three times confessed, is the sin of pride. The one sin that every one of us, every one of us suffers from is the one that hardly ever gets confessed. Pride, arrogance, haughtiness, self-centeredness, self-aggrandizement, all of those things. And it's funny because you look at all the other sins in the New Testament that Paul lists in his letters that create disharmony, all of those sins first start with pride. They first start with a lack of humility. So let me just list them for you. Gossip, divisions, faction-making, being quarrelsome, 
backbiting, boasting, brawling, envy, being a lover of self, and mocking others. Every one of those creates disharmony, and every one of those is born of a lack of humility. All born in pride, haughtiness. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Instead, Paul says, live with sober judgment about yourself. Now, back to 14. Let me mention this about 14. Paul says, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. While we are doing verse 14 next week with 17 through 21, which is, you know, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. We could also recognize that verse 14 is also pretty important when it comes to living in harmony and humility with others, especially those who persecute us. And when we think of those who persecute us, generally we think of those outside of the body of Christ, outside of the faith, outside of the church. And most of what Paul talks about in in chapter 12 is our relationship inside of the church. But verse 14 is where he begins to break a little bit from that and say, we're also going to talk about how we're supposed to have genuine love for those outside of the church. And this is the first area where he begins to introduce that idea. That we are to bless those who persecute us. Bless and do not curse them. You know, you and I are little cursing machines. We're not necessarily blessing machines, but God has blessed us to be a blessing to others. And the way that we're able to do that is, again, to be gospel-centered, to be people who preach the gospel to, uh, to ourselves every single day, who remind ourselves of, of the salvation that we have in Christ so that then we can go out and proclaim that good news of Christ to others. We need to remember the gospel. We need to remember that if you and I got what we deserved, I know some of us say, I don't want to bless that person. I want to curse them because that's what they deserve. But if you and I got what we deserved, you and I would not be made righteous, we would not be forgiven, we would not be redeemed, we would not be reconciled, we would not be adopted sons and daughters of the Father, and we would not share in the inheritance of Christ that is kept in heaven for us. So let me just take a few more minutes and and pound on this idea a little longer. I think that as we look at this little passage, there are two characteristics of those who live in harmony and humility that we should talk about a little bit. And one of them we've already mentioned quite a bit. It's, it's this idea of empathy. So, so what is empathy? Empathy by its nature is outward-focused and other-oriented. It's other-oriented and outward-focused. It's getting the focus off us and on others and then getting to know them well enough so that we can enter into their lives, even the messiness of their lives, with them. Now, it is amazing the tendency and the proclivity of human beings to take even something like that, that by its definition is supposed to be other-oriented, take that and somehow redefine it so that it's about us. I heard this term a couple of months ago for the first time, couldn't believe it. Self-empathy. Self-empathy, here you go. Let me, let me tell you what self-empathy is. Empathy is about connecting with what it's like to be someone else. True! Yes, we've started with truth. That's awesome. Now, in order to empathize with someone, you need to pay attention to them and really listen to them. That's true. You need to pay attention to them, listen to them, make yourself outward focused and all about them. That's what empathy is all about. You're on the right track. Even Jesus did that. Jesus looked at people and he listened to people so that he would know them and he could enter their situation. That's what Jesus does. But now, listen. Self-empathy is similar, but it's about really listening to yourself. 
It's about connecting with what's alive in you, turning your attention inward to see what's going on for you. It's about becoming your own best counselor. What a load. We took something, something that's about other people, and even that, we took it and made it about us. Self-empathy. This is the world's story that the world wants you to believe as truth and fulfillment, and it's wrong. The gospel is the true story of the world. What, what Christ has done for us through his life, death, and resurrection, that's the true story of the world so that by being blessed, we can turn ourselves outward and be other-oriented. This is a competing worldview, and we stand and we say, no, the true worldview is the good news of Jesus Christ. Even Paul, it, 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 at the end of this paragraph, he says, do not be wise in your own eyes. So here's the definition of, of, of self-empathy. It's about becoming your own best counselor. Paul says, no, 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 do not be wise in your own eyes. You understand that in Scripture, the definition of foolishness is self-focus and self-exaltation. In other words, if you buy into this self-empathy thing, you are a fool according to God. That wisdom comes from seeking God, seeking after His righteousness, and having many counselors in your community who can tell you uh, with, with a God perspective how your life is going. So as Christians, if we're Christ followers and we really believe in the one another's, the, the New Testament has all these one another's, love one another, forgive one another, encourage one another, confess to one another. This idea of living in community with each other, living with one another, if we really believe in that, then you and I have to practice empathy of the real kind, the kind that is focused outward on others. And I know it takes, it takes humility to practice empathy. It takes work. It takes thought. It takes prayer. It takes time. It takes connection. And it's inconvenient I get that. I get all of that. But remember, Jesus had no problem with inconvenience. Jesus took time. He looked at people. He prayed. We need to remember that. He, he, he took the time to truly know people and to see others in their plight. Uh, last week, Sean talked about uh, Father Damien. And, and I want to kind of continue on that, on that leprosy theme, Okay. There's a guy named Dr. Paul Brand. He spent his entire life as a doctor living in India with lepers, similar to Father Damien, and then eventually moved back to the United States and lived with lepers in Louisiana. And he wrote a book titled, here you go, the title alone probably wouldn't sell many books, but here's the book, Pain, the Gift That Nobody Wants. It's a magnificent book. And, and what he does in the book is he explains how leprosy works. He says leprosy is primarily a nerve disease that, that makes it so you can't feel anything. And so he has story after story after story in his book about people, the reason they lose their fingers is because they fall asleep, a rodent comes in and chews off their finger, and they don't even feel it. They just keep on sleeping. Tells a story about uh, one person who had an appointment in his clinic and, and walked two miles on a broken ankle to get to the clinic because they had no idea that their ankle was blo broken because they couldn't feel anything. Um, if you read about Father Damien, the guy that uh, Sean talked about last week, when Father Damien, Damien finally contracted um, leprosy, he knew it because for some reason there was a pot of boiling water and he needed to stick his hand in the boiling water really fast and he did and he didn't feel anything and that's when he knew he had, he had leprosy. He knew he had leprosy. Now, what Brand points out is that people who are lepers wish 
prayed for and hoped that they would have the one thing that you and I don't want. You and I don't want pain. We're constantly medicating ourselves for pain, running for pain, trying to figure out how to get pain out of our lives, and a leper will come along and say, you don't understand, pain is a gift. God gave us pain so that we knew we could know what's going on, what's wrong. God God gave us pain so that we could be comforted and we could comfort others and bless others. And and I know for some of you, you're sitting there going, yeah, but my pain never goes away and and, and it's something that's chronic and it's going to be with me for the rest of my life and I understand that and I know that's hard. But a leper would say, even in that case, they wish they were you. You have a gift. I have a gift pain is inconvenient it's a problem we don't want it but it's a gift so that we can be comforted in the gospel and we can be a comfort to others so we we live with empathy and then the second characteristic would be just plain old-fashioned friendliness and the the idea behind this idea of friendliness is is not necessarily that you and i are peacemakers not that peacemaking is not a good thing Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. But, but here it's the idea that we're the type of people that don't stir things up in the first place. So th- let me just say this flat out. If you're a drama queen or a drama king, I mean, it doesn't matter what gender royalty you are. If you're one of those drama people, if you're one of those people that likes to chirp and pick and, and stir things up, understand you are somebody who is not living in harmony and you're probably somebody who struggles with pride and haughtiness and arrogance. If you like to stir the pot and watch people be in conflict, that's a problem. That's a problem. Friendly people are humble and harmonious, harmonious, and they, they associate, they have no trouble associating with people that might be considered lowly, and they, they have no trouble actually doing lowly tasks. They're, they're willing to sweep up and stack chairs and change diapers, and, and friendly people recognize that everyone has a story. You ever notice that that when you describe somebody as being very friendly, they're generally people that like to ask questions about other people and hear their stories. It's true. Even Dale Carnegie knew that. That was one of the bases of, of his best-selling book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. It's, it's ask people questions, hear their stories, and listen to them. And, and I, I, I want to I give you a little illustration. I don't tell you this illustration to build me up. It's just, just to give you an example, Okay. I graduated from Fuller Theological Seminary, and I'm on the Alumni Council now. And part of being on the Alumni Council is that twice a year, they ask me to come in with other uh, people on the council and for a half a day interview students who are applying for scholarship money. And I get to interview them, and we do it in, in half-hour increments. And, and Fuller supplies us with this, with this sheet of six questions. And frankly, every time I get this sheet, I look at it and I go, I understand that there's probably some information on there that we would like to have, but they're pretty generic and sterile questions. And I usually just set those aside, and when the person comes in, they sit down, I tell them, I say, I want you to take as long as you want and tell me your story. And I want you to start from the beginning. I want you to tell me everything. I want you to tell me where you were born, what schools you went to, what's your family like. Tell me about your whole family. Tell me about your work, and tell me what you burn for. Tell me what God is doing in your life and, and what he's placed on your heart as a passion. That's what I want to hear. I want to hear your story. Because quite frankly, that's going to be the most important thing that determines in my mind whether or not they should have scholarship money. What is God doing in their life through the gospel and what are they burning for? So hearing people's 
stories, to be able to know and connect them. Finally, I think we need to consider Jesus in this passage. Understand that Jesus was accused. He was accused of associating with the lowly. That was a bad thing in his context, being a friend of sinners. Associating with the lowly for Jesus was not a cool cause that allowed him to check the volunteer box on his, on his application or his resume, but rather associating with the lowly was something that cost him. It cost him in his reputation, and it cost him eventually in his life. But he also did it in order to show what the kingdom of God looks like. He said, I'm bringing the kingdom of God, and this is what it means. Jesus also washed other people's feet. You know, in that context, that's just a crazy thing. Rabbis didn't wash other people's feet. Their feet were the ones that would get washed. And so we like to ask the question now, what, what does feet washing look like today? Feet washing today, it's probably not that practical. It really doesn't help anybody. I mean, if I got down off the counter and, and went over to Jack and started washing his feet, it would be a little weird, wouldn't it? He probably doesn't need it anyway. I've heard he's got the cleanest feet in the world. But th- th- there's really no need for me to wash his feet. But what's it a metaphor for? It's a metaphor for humbly serving others. That's what it is. How do we humbly serve others today? We need to look for those feet-washing opportunities, not only in the church, but also outside of the church. What does it look like to wash the feet of our community around us? And we could talk for an hour about this, but let me just mention three things. You understand, at Arcadia, we are deeply tied in with the refugees in our community, and we minister to them and serve them. You want to serve people? Get into a redemption community that is serving in the redemption, in the refugee community. Also, do you understand that at, at Redemption Arcadia, the partnership, uh, the, I'm sorry, the partner relationship officer from Phoenix Rescue Mission attends Redemption Arcadia? His name is Mark Tullis. You want to get involved with washing the feet of the community? At Phoenix Rescue Mission, all you got to do is contact me and I'll get you together with Mark and you can work with him. We also wash the feet of our community by, by looking at the, the incarcerated community around us. Those, those who are not only in prison, but also their families, the families of those who are in prison. I, I'm deeply involved in that myself. We can, we can wash feet by getting involved in the incarcerated community as well. Those are just a, a few examples. But even more than that, we need to remember that that we are actually, when we talk about the lowly, I think it's ironic because you and I are actually the lowly for whom Jesus died. It's you and I. We're the lowly. We're the ones who are sinners, lost without God, falling short of His glory. And Jesus died for us. We're actually the lowly. We're actually the poor who became rich because the one who was rich became poor for our sake. We're actually the lowly for whom the kingdom of God has been ushered in for. And, and if we would just remember that, it would help us to understand that, in fact, there really aren't even distinctions between the lowly and those who aren't lowly. We're all lowly, and we all need to be in each other's lives. There's a passage in in Luke chapter 7 I want to close with that demonstrates harmony, humility, and associating with the lowly that's a beautiful example for us. 
Luke writes this. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him. And so Jesus went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, in other words, a prostitute, one of the lowly, when she learned that Jesus was reclining at table in, in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of ointment and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet Jesus' feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now understand, a prostitute was never welcome in a Pharisee's house. She broke all kinds of decorum by going in there, but she also knew that the one who was ushering in the kingdom of God was in there. Jesus was in there, and so she didn't care. She ran in there to be with Jesus. And as she was doing this, one of the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, and he said to himself, if this man were really a prophet, he would have known what sort of woman it is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering to him, because Jesus knows everything, said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. How would you like to be somebody who gets called out by name in the Bible because of something wrong you did? <laughs> Poor Simon. Simon, I have something to say to you. And he, said, and he answered and he said, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other owed, owed 50. So about a year and a half's wages and about a month and a half's wages. When they could not pay, the moneylender canceled the debt of both of them. Now, which of them will love the moneylender more? And Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus said to him, you have judged rightly. But then, turning toward the woman, Jesus said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Not only did the woman break decorum by going into the Pharisee's house, but the Pharisee broke decorum by not greeting Jesus, by not honoring Jesus, and not by not showing respect for Jesus. But the woman who broke decorum by going into the Pharisee's house was the one who gave Jesus exactly what she was supposed to. The lowly one was serving Jesus here. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, Simon, loves little. And Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And she said to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. You and I are that woman who came and cried on Jesus' feet. We're the lowly. We're the prostitutes. We're the tax collectors. We're the sinners. We are the lowlies for whom Jesus came and died for. And if you're here today and you don't know this yet, you have never entered this faith in Jesus Christ, I would pray today that the Holy Spirit would open your heart to this truth and that you would live the story of the gospel rather than the story of the world today. And for those of you who are in the church, understand that if we, would, if we would walk out this gospel and live in harmony and live in humility, that we would be a blessing to others and not a curse to others, which is exactly the way Jesus lived. God, we thank you for the truth of your word and for calling us to this, this high calling of sacrifice and renewed thinking in the gospel. God, help us to do that. Fill us with your Holy Spirit to be able to do that. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.